I was saying as I was walking up here, um, I actually don't remember the last time that uh, I got to see the children's blessing from that vantage point versus this vantage point. And uh, so, as a guy who has the inside scoop, up here, there's a lot of different timing of the Lord's Prayer. When you're out there, it doesn't sound near as bad. It sounds like they're a little bit in a chorus together. When you're up here, it's like tongues of fire are going on, and you need an interpreter for what's going on. But when you're standing out there, it doesn't sound near as, as disjointed as, as what it does sometimes when you're up here. Um, welcome back to week two of spiritual maturity. Um, yes, I did intentionally design this t-shirt for part two. So you can notice that the, the rainbow and the letters and everything are the same. Um, and we will be selling these shirts at some point in time. Not in this color. I know some people are like, oh, well, that's not. You want it in this color. Okay. All right. Well, then we'll take orders for this t-shirt and we will bring that in. Um, sorry, camera guys, but I'm going to move this a little bit because that is like reflecting right off my lens. And I already am not the most qualified preacher as far as hours on the pulpit, so I need all the help I can get. So, Holy Spirit, we're asking for help for the glare. Oh, thank you, Michael. Thank you. Last week, we've looked at four main reasons why people leave their church or their communities. And I know, I know some in the root space, there's, there's semantics of terminology and stuff like that. Those who don't come a lot from the root space stuff, a lot of that stuff you don't have. And so as the church transitions to have people who are coming into more roots-based faith and then individuals who spent 20, 30 years, 40 years of their life in that portion of the movement, I still try to incorporate both groups of people. But four main reasons why people left their church or their communities. One, questioning and doubts of the faith, deconstructing your faith. That's very popular right now. It means something different to a lot of people. A lot of people could say that 40 years ago when people started to look at the Sabbath and they looked at the feasts and the festivals and things like that, that theoretically they were deconstructing their Christian faith by not just towing a party line, a denominational line, whether that was Assemblies of God or that was Baptists or whether it was Presbyterian, um, we had dinner this week. My, my mama, my stepdad was in town. And the irony of how God likes to do life is that when I was about one, maybe two, that guy right there, Mr. Brent Avery, was going to Bible college a couple of miles down the road from my house. He attended the inaugural service of one of the first female pastors in the Presbyterian Church, of which my family was a part of. I don't remember it. I was like this big. No, this would be, I was never that big, but, <laughs> but I was tiny. And going through the conversation at dinner with, with my parents and Brent and Tanya, and, and the irony of the fact that like he was in college doing all what Christian college people do, which is toy with the message Bible. It's as bad as it gets when they're deconstructing their faith in college. But he was in Cincinnati, Ohio at the same point in time in the same stomping ground. And so it's just funny how God does those things and brings everything full circle. But 
Number two is failure to show love, justice through social justice. Black Lives Matter, you know, um, Target, Bud Light. I made it abundantly clear that the only thing that we have an issue with as a church of Bud Light is the fact that it was horrible way before the controversy. Nobody should ever drink a Bud Light. It's just bad, just bad. So now that we've got the doctrine of the church solidified, we can go eat. No, okay. Number three, spiritual abuse and religious trauma. Most people who are keeping any element of the Sabbath, whatever you want to call that, whether it's just honoring, memorializing, whether you've got a whole list of do's and don'ts, whatever that is, most of you have experienced some sort of religious trauma or abuse because you came from a church that didn't really put a whole lot of emphasis on the Sabbath in general. Some of you who have spent your whole entire time in roots-based areas, you come from religious abuse because the Sabbath has become a defining term of your salvation, even though they say it doesn't. If you somehow transgress the Sabbath in their mind, they will passive-aggressively make you feel like you are no longer saved. And so there's all of these things that are there that most of the people in this room have experienced at some point in time. Number four, the church or the leadership abandoned them in moments of need. Then I guess my question still to you guys is this week, then why is the church here? If the church is going to abandon you in your times of need, in your lowest moments, in the moments where things don't seem right, or where you stepped out on your wife, or you stepped out on your husband, or where you're questioning whether Jesus is is Jesus, or whatever the extreme of that is, then why have church? This is Norman, Oklahoma. There are some really nice country clubs around here. Whether you play golf, whether you drink beer, whatever it is you do, whether you crochet, you can find a country club where you can go hang out with people who will be there for you for social activities. A church is a place you're supposed to come to where, one, you're putting first and foremost the emphasis weekly on God. It's not on me. It's not on Brent. It's not on how amazing our sermons might be. It's on the simple fact that today is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it and put all emphasis on him. Hands down. Two, it's a place where you're supposed to be able to come and walk together when times are hard. It's very easy to be friendly when there's no issues But when we get sideways with one another, that's when you find out who your God is. Because if it is Yahweh, if it is Adonai, if it is Lord God, the God of the Israelites, then he calls us to walk together as a family even when things are difficult. In this world, you don't have a lot of people who will do that anyways. So it's even more imperative nowadays for the church to be that place where you can come and know that in your worst of sins, in your worst of moments, in your insecurities, they're going to have your back. And I know some people in this room have done that for me, and I know that we've had the opportunity to do that for some people in this room. And this is something that we're going to continue to try to be, is a place that doesn't abandon people when times get tough. I don't care what you think about me. I don't care what you've heard about me. The one thing I can tell you is that even my enemies will say, if I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. And so we're going to do it. We're going to be a church 
that when you get sideways with God or you get sideways with your spouse or you get sideways with other people, we're still going to walk together until our last breath. As long as I'm here, we're going to do life with each other even when it's hard. Why? Because that's how we grow closer to God. But see, we, we have to realize that church hurt is real. It is. You're going to be hurt. You're going to get sideways with somebody. Just as surely as a kid is not going to do their chore right the first time, you're going to get hurt. Things are going to go sideways. You need to just expect it. But see, if we didn't come to church with the mentality that it was social first, if we came to church with the mentality that it was God first, that Jesus is the center of the church, and that's why we're here. We're not here because Chris has this really cool shirt on that he designed, that there was a cool marketing promotion on social media, that our buddy said, let's come to church. Oh, it's table fellowship, and I didn't have anything in the freezer, and so I needed a free meal. Whatever the reason is, if Jesus is the reason why you come to church, and Jesus is the reason why you want to learn, worship, and grow as a church, then all the incidentals fall away. Because you don't come here looking for me to be perfect because you know I'm not just like I don't stand up here and expect you to be perfect because I know you're not I know that the church is built and bought by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony that that's literally the only person who cannot hurt us Jesus is literally the only person who cannot hurt us why because he's perfection he was without blemish and spot we can look and we can talk about falls and failures all day long. And for a while there, a couple years ago, it actually got really popular to, and it's coming back again, the Hulu series, Netflix series or anything. Let's point out all the flaws in the church. Let's bash the church. You know, there's, there's entire denominations of root-based theologies and doctrines that are the church is wrong, the church has lied to you, the church has done this. And then they turn around in their secret rooms and they do the same things. The problem with all of those concepts is, is everybody is flawed, everybody makes mistakes, and for the most part, most of the people I have met in my life do not have evil intentions. Every once in a while you'll find one or two, but most people don't have evil intentions. So why bash the church? Why bash the people in the church? Why bash the leadership of the church? Well, because it's been popular to do. What's unpopular is to talk honestly about positives and negatives and then talk about how we fix those things. Because the truth is, is if a church has caused hurt or the leadership has gone awry or we're theologically off in left field or we fell off the flat earth or whatever we did, we got pushed off by Sykes' cat, whatever it is, it's funny and it's popular for us to be able to talk about those things when we're not involved in it. But what if we're involved in these things because God wants us to be a part of the solution rather than just the gossip chamber? See, I think he actually wants us to mature to where we are the solution. We're a vessel that allows his Holy Spirit, his power to move in us. But it takes us walking in spiritual maturity.
Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the beautiful rain that you have given to us. Lord, we thank you for each and every person who's here, each and every person who will be listening online, for those who are traveling. Lord, open their hearts, open their minds. Continue to do your work with your power in them, Lord. For you are amazing, you are holy, and you are wonderful. Teach us how to walk in a way that would bear the fruit of your spirit to radically change the culture of this city. In Yeshua's name, amen and amen. Today, I want to look at 10 key elements of how we can walk in spiritual maturity. They're not only for individualistic maturity. I know a lot of times it's very popular when you're looking at self-help or you're looking at sermons. It's like, well, what can I get from this? If we're walking as a body and if we're a family and Jesus is the center, and I'll go ahead and just visually remind you what Brent does, where he walks around, where everything revolves around him, just put it to brain, habits. If everything is him, then it's not just about individualistic development of your walk. Your walk should also then be the growth in somebody else's walk. And if we're a family, then ultimately we're all growing together with Jesus at the center. Number one, we need to be cheerleaders and supporters of other people's callings and wins. You've heard it said, thou shalt not covet. And I get it. It's hard for me to drive through my neighborhood with my youngest son when he sees a Lamborghini and he Dad, I want a Lamborghini. My son has not learned at the age of seven not to covet Lamborghinis. But it would be hypocritical of me to continuously point out the hypocrisy of my seven-year-old son when I happen to be watching Jesus' image in their conference And I see people laying hands on people and they're immediately healed and I see miracles and I'm like, well, God, how come you don't allow me to do that? Because see, we like to talk about the coveting of material possessions, but it's fairly uncommon for us to talk about coveting of the spiritual manifestations and the spiritual gifts that God gives to other people. And the truth is, is Ray, you weren't created to be me and I was not created to be you. You were not given the same gift or the same calling, and this is what makes the body, the church, beautiful. When we can walk in our calling rather than spiritually coveting what somebody else's calling is, we're no longer in conflict with each other. This is hard to understand, and as a guy who's worked in ministry for 17 years, there's a lot of spiritual coveting that happens. But basic 101 If you're walking in spiritual maturity, you're cheerleading, you're happy, you're excited, you're empowering each and every person you meet to be lifted up with the calling that God has given them, not tearing them down so you can lift yourself above them with a gift you might not have. That's important. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25 says, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope but without wavering. For he who is promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. 
We should be stirring one another up to be profitable for the kingdom, to walk in their calling. If God does something and pours out his spirit or manifests himself through that person's life, then praise God. Not, oh, come on, I didn't get it. There's a lot of times in life, if we want to be honest, that we're Jonah and we're throwing a pity party outside of a city that God was merciful to. And we're like, why are you merciful to them, not me, Lord? No, be excited for what God does in somebody else. Don't always covet what God does inside everybody else. Number two, before passing judgment, we should seek to learn and understand where the other person is at. Guys, you might have come here today looking for something revolutionary. Yeah, the most revolutionary thing you're going to get is the most basic thing. Don't be a donkey hole. Once again, I'm allowed to say that because donkeys are not don't pass judgment on somebody that we haven't sought to learn and understand where that person is at. You can't immediately see somebody do something and pass a judgment and a verdict upon that person without understanding what's going on in their life. And a lot of times, the church is really bad at this. Because we come in with an expectation that we're going to be holy and we put this fake facade on because we need to be liked and yet we're just dying inside. And so when somebody's walking around like this or somebody's struggling with their child or whatever it is, it's an immediate judgment and yet we don't know what they walk through. And if you're on social media, it gets even worse nowadays. It used to be just your little sphere of influence, your sphere of interaction. But now, if you watch people, you can watch people all over the globe and say, man, their life is so good. This is so good. Man, I'm having a bad week. This, and it's just a complete toxic element for you in your life. Because you're passing judgment on them in the positive. Their life is so great. And it's probably not. It's probably all fake. But we don't know, and the uncertainty allows us to pass judgment and walk through that judgment. Don't pass judgment until we seek to learn and understand where another person is at. James 4, 11 through 12. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks e evil against the law and the judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? If you've been in the roots-based side of Christianity for any period of time, this is something we really struggle with. How they keep Sabbath, their dietary laws, what do they do on the feast, what do they do when they come in? Oh, do you let your wife wear pants? We cannot immediately seek to judge and project our home onto other people. Just because you're at a different part of the journey doesn't mean you get to judge where somebody else is at on their journey with God. Number three, 
look at each experience as a learning opportunity rather than an immediate conflict with others. Guys, if you get nothing else, I can say this one radically changed my life. There is a book given to me by one of the uh, board members of this church, Ed Harris, years ago. Used to travel around and do uh, marriage counseling. And the book was called The Garden of Peace by Rabbi Shalom Arush. And there's one major overarching principle to that book. Now, women, I'm just going to go ahead and give you, the, I'm gonna give you the key here. Basically, it means the man's at fault for every conflict in your home. That's basically what it is. That, now, there's more to it. There's more to it. But basically, what, what it's saying is that your relationship as a, as a man, as a husband, and I know I haven't seen shiny, happy people, haven't watched the Duggars thing, so I'm on dangerous ground when we start talking about patriarch and the husband's ahead and all these things, and every, we could spend an entire day with y'all casting stones. But the husband is the reflection to the home. So if you're reflecting down and there's conflict with your spouse, you are, you're a COD member, the thought is, is that you're reflecting the very issue between your personal relationship and your heavenly father, who is your head. Take it for what it's worth, but I can tell you, I've been married almost 20 years. When I change my mentality, now my wife is never wrong, ever. Never seen a moment where she's ever been wrong. She's only admitted to being wrong a couple of times in our entire marriage. And even then, I didn't think she was wrong. She just was being kind to me. But when I changed my mentality in my marriage, that rather than immediately looking at whatever conflict, whatever strife was happening, that it was immediately something broken in my wife or broken in my children. And I started looking at it and saying, is there a brokenness in this area that God's trying to get my attention? Revolutionize our home. Then I took it a step further. I don't know why, but I took it a step further and I started to look at all conflicts, all conflicts through the same lens. Now, it might be narcissistic, to quote Brian Serrano from a couple of weeks ago, but when I get into a conflict, trolling, if you and I get into a conflict, if we have crosswords with each other, I'm going before the Lord and I'm not asking the Lord, why are you being such a donkey hole? I'm asking the Lord, what is it that I'm not getting? Why can't, why can't I get right here? Like, what, what are you trying to teach me, Lord? And I've started to approach conflicts in my life, not that the other person is wrong, not that the other person is in error, but that maybe God's just using this situation to teach and to grow me. And it's radically changed my life. Some of you know the testimony of what's happened to our family over the last six months. Some of you only know the 50,000 foot and some of you know nothing, but our family went through a massive conflict and transition in the last six months. Massive. And yet I'm not mad. I don't have any ill will towards the people that we no longer have a relationship with. I wasn't mad I think I must have said a hundred times over, what in the world is the Lord trying to teach me? If I keep finding myself in this type of a situation, what are you trying to teach me? And by the way, Lord, 
If I'm the quarterback of my life and you're the coach calling in the plays, the comm system is broken. It's broken. Stop calling in yellow five, blue 40, Patriot 574. Call in like, go left, dummy. Because whatever you're calling in, I'm not getting. And through those conflicts, it allowed me to be at peace, literally with every person in those situations. I have no animosity towards them. Still not exactly sure everything the Lord's trying to teach me in that moment, but it it keeps you from immediately saying not every situation has to be a divorce. Not every grafting situation needs to be pruned for the death. In fact, if the Lord is pruning a plant, I'm pretty sure his goal is not to kill it. So why do we immediately think negative? No, if God is severing branches and grafting in other plants, it's normally for the stability and the growth of both plants. But you have to look at every opportunity as a learning experience rather than an immediate conflict with somebody else. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have, good, have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two would withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. We need others. And if we started to look at the conflicts and the situations that God puts us in as potentially an opportunity for us to grow and to learn rather than an immediate, guys, I'm just going to call it out for my roots-based people. I don't ever want to hear comments on the wheat and the tear in a conflict ever again been around for 17 years. And when a conflict happens in a roots base, it's like God separating the wheat and the tares. Because immediately that means that we're the wheat and we have to be good. And whoever's in conflict with us has to be the tares. So God's taking the thorns out. What if you're the tear? See every situation not as wheat and tares, not as good and evil. But what is the Lord trying to do in you? Because if you actually focus inside your relationship with God and when you're in conflict with somebody else who is God's child, you'll no longer be asking God, well, what are you trying to teach that person? God, why won't you bring down your judgment and let your fire fall on that person? And God's up there just going like, hey, why are you so worried about that person? I'm trying to grow you. I'm trying to teach you. I'm trying to correct you. But you can't see it because you're more worried about God bringing down his judgment on somebody else. I can rest in this and know that it says in James 4, God judges. God righteously judges. I don't need to judge somebody else's sin. Because if they're in sin, God's going to do a much better job than I will. I just need to continue to make sure that God is not having to bring down judgment on me. Number four, develop relationships with believers that even when what you say makes them uncomfortable, that they will still say. 
they'll still stay. See, America has been a land of great opportunity for so many people. I can design a t-shirt and it'll be here in seven days. I can go and the problem I have with dinner is not that I can't find a restaurant. It's which Mexican restaurant is the best? Which sushi place is the best? Which pig stand has the best smoked brisket? That's our problem. We're a land of excess excess. And so a lot of times we never develop relationships inside the church and even sometimes now in our own families that when you do exactly what you should be doing, which is standing up for what is right, standing up for the good of other people, they normally don't stay. You've offended me. I've been triggered. Let's spend the next four months talking about the decisions Target made or Bud Light made or whoever else made. We're triggered. Why? How many of you have any relationship with the CEO of Target? Nobody? Okay. Then let's just do our life. But that's uncomfortable to say because the truth is, is the Bible calls homosexuality a sin. The Bible calls heterosexuality outside of marriage when you're fornicating a sin. There's sexual lusts and sins, and there's sins. And when we start talking about sins, and we, we call people out for sins, and we take a line in the sand, sins. We don't want to talk about the word sins. So when you start to talk to people, develop a relationship that you can be honest and say, you're sinning, you're out of line, get back in line. Brent will tell me all the time, I'm out of line. He'll say it in a really kind way. He's like, I'm not telling you what to do, but if I was doing it, I wouldn't do it that way. It's the eldership model that he gets to be in. So develop the relationships where you can speak honestly into people's life. Guys, you do not really have a relationship with anybody, your spouse, your friends, the church, anybody. If they can't speak honestly into your life, they are not your friend. They might be your acquaintance. They might be a buddy who you get to hang out with and do social endeavors. But if they cannot speak honestly into your life, they're not your friend. And that might be your responsibility because you've built the walls up, or that might be theirs. They just don't want that. Micah 6, eight, or excuse me, uh, number 5, keep your spirituality simple. You need to practice your prayer life. You need to study the Word of God as the authoritative guide to the decisions you make. I can promise you this. Any man who wrote some random book, it is not the authoritative guide. It might be an opinion. It might be a good resource. But as a pastor, i got to ask you a question. And no, this is not my own. I stole it from Matt Nappers, so look, I'll just call it what it is. How many of you are regularly reading your Bible? The authoritative word. Thank you, Trollin. You want to know how to not get caught up in a cult? Read your Bible. You want to know how to overcome the world? Read your Bible. You don't need to come hear me. 
Read your Bible. We come here not so that I can feed you. If this is the only place you're getting fed anything on the Word of God or anything else, you will die. You will famish. You will be famished, and you will not be fed spiritually. Read your Bible. This gathering here is for us to talk and point out life's lessons and how we can do them together so we can become more like the apprentices of Jesus in the 21st century. This is not the only place you are to get the Word of God. The Word of God should be authoritative in your life. If it doesn't say it, then it's probably not authoritative. I love the Jewish sages. I love me some John Brevere. I love me some Craig Grishel. I love Francis Chan. I love all kinds of people. Heretic moment, I love Lisa Brevere. I love Joyce Meyer. I believe you can learn something from any single person you meet, that God can teach you something positive through any relationship that's there. But if anything is taught or anything sounds good and it's not backed up by the Bible, it's not authoritative. And then humbly stay in submission to the power of the Holy Spirit. That means that you also have to acknowledge that there still is a Holy Spirit. You have to first acknowledge that there is still a Holy Spirit. Sorry, all my Baptist friends. The Holy Spirit was not done away with at the end of the Gospels. I might have argued that with you before, but what I've seen... When, I mean, Robin even hasn't even given the opportunity, gotten the opportunity to talk about having the lay on of hands. And Tanya was out of town. She thought she skirted that opportunity. We're coming testimony time. We're going to have a testimony Saturday. I don't even know if that's a thing. But sooner or later, God has healed people. That wasn't me. I didn't heal you. Brent didn't heal you. Ray didn't heal you. Nobody healed you except for the power of the Holy Spirit. We have to understand you have to keep your spirituality simple. You were never intended to be the end-all to be-all. I was not intended to be the end-all to be-all. God was. So don't overcomplicate it. If somebody says, let me teach you all the mysteries of the Bible, my history of 40 years across multiple denominations is get in your car and drive faster the other way than you would from a tornado, which is saying something because some of you would drive towards a tornado, throw out a lawn chair, and crack a beer. <laughs> Keep your relationship with the Lord simple. So many people could say, oh, I'll tell you the gematria of this number and yet, when you listen to what's going on in their home and how they treat their spouse or how they treat their kids, it's like, you need the English. I will give you the message Bible. If you apply that, you are in good place. So keep your relationship simple. God still does revelations. Micah 6.8, he has told you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. It's sometimes hard to walk humbly when you have all of these revolutionary ideas and concepts and mysteries and everything. It's, it's hard to walk humbly when you have every answer that God has ever poured out in the Bible. You 
knew the insides of Paul's brain better than he did when he was writing his letters. And if you think these are jokes, I've literally heard all of these things. Keep it simple, guys. Even if God reveals something to you in the word and you're going through the Hebrew or the Greek or you're going through the sages, you're going through these things, if at any point in time you lose track of the fact that there is God, there's Jesus, you don't get to go anywhere near God without Jesus. Run. There is nothing so beautiful in Judaism that should ever allow you to forsake your only way to the Father. And that's through the Son. All authority, all power, all honor has been given to him. I will tell you right now, church, if you come to me for counseling and you have children who are, I'm not sure how they're doing on this faith, I'm counseling you to make sure they stick with Jesus, not with the menorah on Friday night, not with Pentecost, not with anything else. As long as your kid sticks with Jesus, great. Because I've watched way too many roots-based Christian parents lose their kids in any element of faith. And I'm talking any. They're atheists now. No element of faith because everything else was so complex and important that they forgot Christ and Christ crucified. Look, this church is a full Bible church. We're going to do our best to teach you Genesis to Revelation and through the the 20 years that Brent's been on this earth and this 40 years that I've been on this earth, we're going to do our best. I had that backwards of the faith, but I was trying to show honor and respect there. Um, We're going to do our best to teach you all of those things, but this church will never put Sabbath above Jesus. This church will never put the gathering of people together on the rules of Sabbath above Jesus. This church will never put the feasts above Jesus. This church will never put eschatology in end times above Jesus. You know the old adage, we think we're so clever. Guess what? Even in our roots-based movement, we have lacked maturity because we've literally stolen something from the 90s church. And probably earlier, but I can't speak with any authority on that because I was not, I don't remember a lot of the 80s. And it's not because of the 60s, it's because I was just born in the 80s. (laughs) If we cannot get somebody to see that Jesus is their Savior, the age-old adage of, we're just going to scare you into professing him so that you don't go to hell. If we can't get you to believe Jesus on the merits of Jesus, we're just going to scare the dickens out of you so you'll say Jesus is your salvation. So at least you're not going to hell. That's a 90s, 80s, and probably earlier, I'm guessing, concept of the mainstream Christian church. It means we don't have to grow in maturity because we don't have to learn how to overcome the obstacles the world and the culture is putting out there so that we can do life with people who are different from us and teach them why it's important. Let's just scare you. Let's just scare you. But, you know, we don't see that happening anymore in the roots-based movement. Keep it simple, guys. You don't need to know when Jesus is coming back if you can't figure out how to walk with Jesus every single day. Cart before horse. 
Number six, do life with others, and yes, that means the ones that make you uncomfortable. Okay. Now more than ever, over the last couple of years, we have watched predominantly social media and the news media. I like to call them the propaganda machine, but I'm not political at all. They have created a culture where all you hear on a regular basis is your echo chamber. It's almost no different than if you had multiple personalities. Because what they do is they find other people who basically are shadows of your personality on their social interaction, whether it's political or grocery stores or whatever. And they show those to you on a regular basis. And studies show that by doing that, you engage more, which means they make more advertising revenue. They have more power and more influence over you. The 12 disciples were not an echo chamber. They fought. I have two other brothers. We're not echo chambers. We fight. We don't agree on all kinds of things. In fact, we're an old country song. We can talk about anything in this world except for politics, religion, and her. And I'm not sure what her is yet, but you can't talk about it. We have to get outside of our echo chamber. We forget that Jesus made a point of spending time with people who would not be considered to be clones of Jesus. And yet as we try to get back to this first century way of walking as Christians, we're like, well, the only way we can fellowship with that person is if his zitziot are exactly this long. Or if his kippah is here is if he voted for Donald Trump. I don't care who you voted for. I'm actually more interested in hanging out with you if you voted for somebody who's different than who I voted for. Why? Because you might help me learn something. One of the beautiful things about what God's doing in this church is he's bringing people from all different denominations and political influences and lifestyle. And some people would say, well, that, that makes me uncomfortable because I don't know. I don't. Ian has his lip pierced. Like, it makes me so uncomfortable. Guess what? In 2002, I had a spike right there. Yeah, hurt like the Dickens. You should have seen my fiance's parents. I was a rebel without a cause. Don't do life in an echo chamber. Because if you're doing life in an echo chamber, the chances of you growing, evolving, developing are pretty slim pretty slim and that's what the media that's what social media that's what they want they want you in an echo chamber they want you controlled and they want you to think that anybody who has a different opinion than you is evil no guess what there's a lot of real evil in this world but somebody who voted for kanye west over donald trump doesn't necessarily mean that they're evil but that's what we create. We see this with Target. We see this with Bud Light. We see this literally with anything. Uh, Trump got indicted too. So now it's, oh, this whole side's up in uproar. This side's, he's innocent. We don't even know the facts yet, but we're passing judgment on people because we have been created to live in an echo chamber. To walk in spiritual maturity means that we have to walk outside of our echo chamber 
so that we can learn about other people. And maybe through that, God wants you to be discipled by them. Matthew disciples me all the time. Whether he knows it or not, he comes from a different background. He thinks of things completely different than I do. He's wired mentally completely different. And so by having him as a part of our deacons team, when he shares his thoughts with me, it challenges me to look at things from a different perspective. And I love it. Because almost every single time you can think of something different. You can, I would have never arrived at that conclusion. It's great to understand that. But if you don't create an environment where you welcome that, you empower that, and you walk in those relationships, guess what? Continue to do everything the same way you've ever always done it. That's also a quick way to end up in a cult. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 20. Guys, again, I repent for the many, many years in the roots-based side of Christianity where we literally took any spiritual gift and we threw it into the, the machine and everybody immediately became a teacher. I know in the transition over the last year of this church, people would come up and they say, wait a second, you're the senior pastor of this church? You're walking as the senior pastor? And why is that guy teaching all the time? You're the senior pastor. So what, he's the teaching pastor, but you're the senior pastor, but you're not teaching much? And it's like, well, I know my strengths, and my strengths is not a teacher. He's a really amazing teacher. So at this time, I'm going to work where my strengths are to empower and disciple people, and I'm going to put them where his strengths are. We've already well established over the last couple of months that I'm a certain part of the body sometimes. So not everybody in this place needs to be that certain part of the body. We need people who are kind. I'm struggling to learn how to be empathetic. It's true. But a pastor needs to be when you're in counseling, when things are going. You need to be empathetic. You need to be sympathetic to the situations. Stallsworth has known me a long time. That has never been my strong suit, but I'm having to learn. And so you place people in areas, not only of your life, but inside the church so that you can grow and you can learn. We're not all the same and we're not supposed to be the same. If you are, that's another way you end up in a cult. 
I know I keep coming back to that, but the truth is, is that God did not come to create a cult. Jesus came to introduce everybody to this revolutionary, life-altering thing that originally started in the Garden of Eden, that we could all live life to the fullness of what God had for us if we learn how to die to ourselves daily, if we learn how to say we're sorry, if we learn how to place ourselves into accountability around people. And rather than knowing everything about God, we actually walked in the power of God which should show the commandments, show the fruit, and people should see the power of the Holy Spirit through our life. Number eight, number seven. I'm not, this is not a three-week thing. Y'all welcome. There's no table fellowship. We're going to get it done. So when you aren't reaping. So when you aren't reaping. Everything. 99 for the one. Everything you have, including your life, is God's. Finances, spiritual gifts, your time, your thoughts, your physical, what you do, touch, whatever. So when you're not reaping. If you're, if you're struggling financially, you sow. Maybe it's not even sowing financially. Maybe you literally have no money. So, oh, I can't bring something to the storehouse of the Lord. No, you can. You bring yourself. You bring your talent. You bring your gift. You bring whatever it is. Oh, I don't have any money, so I can't buy Aton a gift on Sunday. Sorry, Aton. But I can spend time with Aton and show him that he's loved. You're sowing maybe when you're not reaping. Oh, hey, uh, I, I, I'm just in a wasteland spiritually. Okay, you're going to get out of it by not reading the Bible, not praying. No, you sow into prayer. You sow into reading your Bible. You sow into the fellowship when you don't feel like God's talking to you because you should be sowing when you're not reaping because the reaping and the harvest is always God's and the time is always perfect. Sometimes we forget our job is to scatter seeds. His job is to make sure that there is a sun in the sky, to make sure there's sunlight, that there's water that falls from heaven to make sure that it's watered. And when the time comes and the cycle he has chosen, it will come forth. That's not our job. Galatians 6, 9. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. Don't grow weary. Steadfastness, long-suffering, not an easy fruit of the Spirit. Not at all. I'm just now seeing, almost 20 years later, fruit of seeds I've sowed. And honestly, I, I have many conversations with the Lord. This is about myself. I was never going to see those seeds grow. 20 years later, I'm finally starting to see those seeds that have been planted 20 years before. And we're talking about my own life. We're talking about my own relationship with the Lord. I'm not even projecting on somebody else. Don't grow weary. Eight, God's kingdom, your role in God's glory is about him, not you. In this corner of Christianity, most people only come to church so that they can stand here. Or so that they can stand here. The glory in anything a community does a believer does is not so that you can find your face on the back of a book or that somebody can mention your name and they're like, oh man, this guy is so amazing. The greatest thing 
I hope that would ever be said about me is that, man, God spoke through that man. Not, oh, I spoke well. Oh, I gave an amazing sermon. Oh, that was revolutionary. No, God worked through that man to impact me. Because anything that comes out of my mouth that's good, it's definitely God. Anything that comes out that's bad, yeah, that's all me. You can put this label on that. This is not about you. It's about God. That's hard sometimes for us to, us to understand. Is that the kingdom of God, the role he's given you, and the glory in both of those are his alone. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. You remember, friends, that when I first came to you and let you in on God's sheer genius, I didn't try to impress you with polished speeches and the latest philosophy. I deliberately kept it plain and simple. Keep it simple. First Jesus and who he is, then Jesus and what he did, and then Jesus crucified. I was unsure of how to go about this and felt totally inadequate. Paul's reading my mail. I was scared to death, and if you want the truth of it, and so nothing I said could have impressed you or anything else, but the message came through anyway. God's spirit and God's power did it, which made it clear that your life of faith is a response to God's power, not to some fancy mental or emotional footwork by me or anyone else. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. Number nine, stay anchored. And then our immaturity will end. And we will not be easily shaken by trouble, nor led astray by novel teachings or by the false doctrines of deceivers who teach clever lies, Ephesians 4, 14. If you're in this room, God did something to lead you to start looking at different elements of the scripture. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of churches around the Oklahoma City, Norman Moore area. And there are various different doctrines and theologies and ideologies and practices and one of the most dangerous things for people like us is right here. Don't be cast to and fro by wayward theologies, wayward doctrines. I've seen it destroy homes. I've seen it destroy marriages. I know for a fact on, on a large scale, parents, your children will walk away from this faith when they're 18, 19, 20 years old. If you cannot stay anchored in solid maturity in your faith, your kids are going to go. And the reason why they're going to go is because they don't know what's true. They don't know what's up or what's down. That's why I said earlier, Jesus. Jesus. I believe personally in my own journey, if you keep Jesus, if everything else, everything else at some point in time gets wayward, they'll see the Sabbath through Jesus. They'll see the feasts through Jesus. It might take a while, but guess what? Our job is to plant seeds. God's job is to let them grow. Stay anchored. What happens if your entire faith in Jesus is anchored on the shape of the earth or any one theology? What happens when your child grows up and they end up going to college and they want to be in, an astronaut or they want to study something and all of a sudden there's all these 3D imagery and everything, whether it's fake or not I'm, not, I'm not even talking theology, and all of a sudden they see all these images of a globe and it's like, wait a second, my parents told me that the Bible says that the earth has to be this and if the earth has to be this and I can clearly see it's not, 
then the Bible can't be real, which means Jesus can't be real, which means God can't be real, which means everything I taught was a lie. Boom. No parent in this room wants to do that to their child. So do not go from one side to the other side, one side to the other side on theology. Wherever you come out on those things, that's okay. Don't anchor your faith to those. Anchor your faith to Jesus. All the rest of those are incidental. And as a guy who's been in this faith for a long time, I've changed an awful lot of those incidentals in my life. Seems like every year I change them. Stay anchored. Ten, reflect God's character and integrity in and out of the church. This ties back to the religious hypocrisy from earlier on why people leave. It's one thing to walk through these doors. I'm blessed and highly favored. Read your Bibles. Read your Bibles. And then walk out the door and you're a completely different person. Reflect God's character and integrity inside and outside of the church. Ephesians 5, 1 through 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. God is not something that we can dangle in front of people as a way for us to look cool or smart or influential. No, we're to be imitators of him so people don't see us they see him i'm going to reiterate to you guys i cannot save your life i can't save your marriage i can't save your finances but god can and so the best thing i can do and the best thing my wife can do is to point you back to the word of god point you back to practices and principles that come from the scripture and imitate what god has said to do not write some newfangled book on how we came up with something new there's nothing new under the sun imitate god his character and his integrity why why is spiritual maturity why is that important why is it important to be spiritually mature we spent over a year redirecting this church into an Acts chapter 2 type of church. Four main elements of the church and the community, how to walk that way. But ultimately, there's one key element that we still need. A longevity of walking a unity lifestyle. There's that cult-like word unified but acts chapter 2 peter was standing with the 11 and he lifted up his voice and addressed them and he said men of judea and all who dwell in jerusalem let this be known to you and give ear to my words for these people are not drunk as you suppose since it is only the third hour of the day but this is what was uttered through the prophet joel See, the Holy Spirit had fallen. The indwelling of God and man had occurred. And it says that when Peter started to preach, the 11 were with him. Now, this is the same man who had denied Messiah three times. This is the same man who had a little bit of a road rage, anger issue, took a sword to a dude's ear. He was fully justified. He was defending God, unlike Judas. 
like if we're going to cast stones here. But this dude literally cut off a man's ear with a sword. This is also the guy who kind of chose Matthias, started that process to replace Judas. And well, there's not a whole lot of gospel accounts about Matthias afterwards. So I'm going to guess like he wasn't necessarily a world changer. He didn't have a seminary degree. He didn't have a doctorate in theology. He was a fisherman and he did not design cool t-shirts. Yet the Bible says when Peter stood up and was defending what was happening and he was speaking to those who were questioning what they saw, that the 11 stood with him. I would have to believe that those 11 knew better than any of us in this room just what a mess Peter actually was. And yet, symbolically, they remained in unity through the failures, the triumphs. No one, no one stood up and was like, Peter, that's not exactly how that went. Peter, that's really, really good. But when I write my gospel account, I'm going to change that fact. There was no bickering or bantering like we saw in the upper room. No. They stood in agreement behind Peter for what the Lord was doing with Peter. We have to make sure that we understand our motivation is to walk like first century messianic Christians. That's our motivation. To walk like the apprentices of Jesus. Not apprentices of Caiaphas. Not apprentices of David. God's not trying to take us back to Sinai. God's trying to take us back to the garden. And has been for a really, really long time. And the sooner that we understand that Jesus gave us one pretty clear thing. Hey, I'm coming back. I'm coming back. Well, we all want Jesus to come back. So what did he tell him to do? Because see, this is why it's important for us to walk a unity lifestyle. This is why it's important for us to walk in spiritual maturity. Because he says, I'm coming back again. And so what are we supposed to be doing? What, what happens in there? Matthew 24, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of age? Now this is important because it's no longer just Bible prophecy. Literally everything is like the global reset, the economy's gonna collapse. Everything is about some doom and gloom. Be scared, be afraid, be scared, be afraid. Every once in a while, send me a donation, whatever. Be scared, be afraid. You turn on Fox News, you're going to get it. You turn on CNN, they're actually a lot more alike than they care to admit. But like, it's be afraid. Everything's falling apart. Uh, nothing new under the sun. They're, hey, when, when, when are you coming back? When are these things going to happen? What's going to be the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. Yeah, we don't hear that a lot on Fridays. Don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Don't be alarmed, the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. Okay, birth pains. 
Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and they will put you to death. We're also supposed to die daily, so this shouldn't be that scary. They're going to deliver us up and put us to death, okay? But we're supposed to die daily so that Christ can live through us. So the death of this is never really supposed to be our concern. The death of this is not supposed to be our concern. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to the nations. Two things got to happen. You have to endure. Now, there's a lot of teachings, a lot of theologies. What does it mean to endure? A lot of it's focused on physical preparedness. Folks, I believe the scripture in this point makes an emphasis on physical actions, yes, but spiritual preparedness at the forefront. How do you have spiritual preparedness and how do you teach people spiritual preparedness? You have to walk through spiritual maturity. Because it says, and the gospel, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to the nations, and then the end will come. A lot of time spent on wars, wars, rumors of wars, t-shirts, hats, rumors of wars. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. The testimony in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That no one can save. That he can save. That he is coming back again. So whatever place you're at, if you're here because you're looking for the end of the ages, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world and the testimony to all nations and then the end will come. If you're here today because you're trying to grow in your relationship with Jesus, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to the nations, and then the end will come. Sooner or later, we got to find a balance in our walk. Sooner or later, we got to find a balance in our approach to community. And sooner or later, we have to take what has become a massive issue of knowledge and turn it into a spiritually mature lifestyle that bears fruit. Don't tell me what you know about God. Show me the character of God living through you and how you walk and how you walk and how you walk. Show me how you treat your wife and how you treat your kids. Show me how you treat the people when you're at Walmart. Show me how you treat the Muslims. Show me how you treat the Baptists, the Pentecostals. Show me that Jesus is your king in how you walk out your life by walking in spiritual maturity. Because when we start preaching the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, then the end will come. Now, I think that's the end of us and our flesh. That's the end of our pride, our egos, but it's also the end of this life. Church, we need to continue to be refined the worship team comes. 
I don't care how long you've walked in a relationship with God. I don't care how long you've walked wherever you've walked. Every day of every moment of every breath of your life is an opportunity for you to be refined by God. To draw closer to Him, closer to the calling He has on your life. And to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel to the nations. Not only to preach with your lips, but through your actions. See, one of the most unique things about me is that I much rather would see somebody change the world through this motion than through this motion. It's not as popular nowadays. A lot of times we just got YouTube and TikTok and you can beautiful words and sound bites. But those happen, what, on a Sunday, on a Saturday? What about Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday? What about when uh, you're by yourself and you open up your phone? What about when you're at work and you're on your lunchtime with your buddies? What about when you're at a basketball game or you're at a baseball game or at a softball game? We need to be refined into spiritually mature apprentices of Jesus, not just children. But we can't do that on our own. You have to come to a humble submission to the power of God in your life. You have to allow God through his word, the authoritative documents he's given us, through the power of prayer and meditation on his word, and then to actually walk in community. So today as we close out the service, as as we sing, what does God need to refine in you? We could be here all the way till Saturday if I were to give you my list of things that he needs to continue to refine in me. But just think about one. Just think about one area in your life right now that that you need to be refined. That you need to be closer to his image than your own image. And I believe in the power of God to heal, to set free, to break chains. I believe in it. And so as we sing these lyrics, as we sing, we want to be refined by fire. Sounds really good. Lord, refine me by your fire. Biblically, yeah, when you start getting refined by fire, woo-hoo, yeah. But how many of us got to a place in our walk with the Lord where we can actually say, I want to be refined by your fire. I know it's not fun. I know it's not maybe going to feel that good, but do it. Get it out of me. Hone me. Make me like a sharp sword in your hand to pierce the devil. In that moment, if you can find your place in that secret spot with the Lord, I promise you he's going to refine you. Because I've never met a father who doesn't care for his kids. I've never met a father who wouldn't go to the ends of the earth, even in their inadequacies for their children. And that's a human father who has inadequacies. Our Heavenly Father does not have inadequacies. So as we sing this, bow your heads, throw your hands up and worship, whatever you do, whatever, however you get with the Lord. But take these next five minutes, just you and the Lord, 
and just ask him to refine whatever that is. If the altar's where you meet us, take me there, take me there. What you need is just an offering. It's right here. My life is here, and I'll be a living sacrifice for you. You're a fire, the refiner. I want to be consumed, I want to be tried by fire, purify, you take whatever you desire, Lord here's my life, if your glory wants to come here, let it fall, we want it all. Your fire is consuming. Fill this place, set it ablaze, and I'll be a living sacrifice for you. You're a fire, a refiner. I want to be consumed. I want to be tried by fire. Purified, you take whatever you desire. Lord, here's my life. I want to be tried by fire. Purified, you take whatever you So clean my hands and purify my heart. I want to burn for you, only for you. So take my life as a sacrifice. I want to burn for you, only Yeah. 
Therefore, I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Church, may I ask you to stand as we dismiss with the word of prayer. May I impress upon your hearts the worship service has not ended. It's just now beginning. Your spiritual act of worship isn't just what you do in here. It is the spiritual maturity and grace with which you conduct yourselves as you walk in this world with him, empowered by him equipped by him. Don't worry. He's already given you everything you need for life and godliness. I know it's a little cray-cray out there, but he's already given you everything you need to grow up in him. Abba Father, our service is not over. Our worship is just beginning. I pray as we cry out to you in these times of corporate worship for the anointing and presence of your Holy Spirit, I now also cry out to you for the anointing and presence of your Holy Spirit as we walk by faith through those doors to our homes, to our jobs, to our schools, to our neighbors, to our relationships. Father, help us to walk in a manner that is pleasing to you. Use us to be a beacon of light in the darkness. And Father, give us the confidence to stand on the truth. You have given us everything we need. Dismiss us now, Father, 
with your benediction, your blessing, your provision, your grace to do life with him who is life. In the name of Yeshua, the Messiah, I pray these things and believe for great and wonderful moments to come as our service continues as we leave this place. And all God's children said, Amen and Amen. Be blessed on this Sabbath. Go and continue to serve and continue to worship. Amen.